Hello, folks. Welcome to the 37th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at a myth from the Incan Empire called Children of the Sun. So, join me today on a journey into the past and the present a voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. today, The Children of the Sun, was likely created close to the time of the rise of the Incan Empire. This origin myth has relatively little information available on it, however. I couldn't ascertain where it was first published or who it was initially recorded by. Similar to other stories, there are now other pieces of media with the same name, as well as multiple different versions, some of which are incomplete, that are recorded by different people and told by different people. It is speculated that this and other myths were recorded on the quipus of the Incas, though this remains a mystery as we've never been able to successfully translate these quipus other than uh, the numerical variety of them, which we'll talk about. What is clear is that this myth was regularly told by Incas as a way to assert their centrality and divine position in the region. But we need to back up quite a lot, because the history of the Inca Empire is based on a whole bunch of other cultures. See, the Incas were centered in Peru and were preceded by a number of distinct civilizations and a diversity of smaller cultures many of whom we have only minor artifacts from. All of these were centered on the Andean mountain range, mostly in Peru and Ecuador. First evidence of human inhabitants is from 12,500 BCE. The site contains complex textiles using specialized techniques unheard of until thousands of years later in most of the world. Indigo dye has been found at the site, indicating that the process of making clothes was already at a decidedly late stage. Food was predominantly vegetable, uh, mostly maize and avocados, although we do know that they uh, were getting fish from the coast, as there was a presence of fish hooks and other stone tools for this purpose. The presence of corn indicates that at this extremely early historical moment, trade was already being conducted across the Americas. Most surviving structures were built from earth, stone, and cement. This cement appears to have been made from ash and water. Despite this early evidence, we lack archaeological evidence for habitation between this time and the next major development in the Andes. 
This is almost certainly due to a failure in discovering these sites, as the later civilizations clearly used this early understanding of weaving, textiles, and cement to their advantage. Now, due to the harsh conditions of the mountains, the Andes would not be inhabited permanently until much later in history. The coast was the predominant location of early Peruvian civilization. Similar to the Sumerians, a group now called the Corral Supe, or Norte Chico, or Corral, began to flourish around 3000 BCE in a complex set of river valleys. The Fortaleza River, Pativilca River, and Supe River supported at least 30 settlements. The Corral Supe did not make pottery, and no visual art has been discovered from them. Instead, the Corral Supe focused on large-scale earth-moving, creating enormous mounds and sunken plazas, perhaps for governmental functions, early theater, musical performances, or even religious rituals. They continued to make use of the complex textiles of the early, unnamed groups of early Andeans. Some of the mounds resembled pyramids, suggesting either a use in an organized religion, or perhaps as monuments to particular rulers. These pyramids are almost completely eroded today. Interestingly, many contemporary texts fail to mention the existence of the Corral Supe due to the inhospitable nature of the coastal Andean region today. What appears as almost a desert now was likely a verdant series of river valleys with access to the coast. Trade routes would have supplemented any failure in crops. Irrigation was used regularly to move water from rivers to farms. Like all river valley ecosystems or riparian ecosystems, the region made a perfect center for early agricultural civilization. The Corral Supe ate a diet of agricultural products and seafood. Beans, squash, sweet potato, guava, other fruits, bivalves, which are mussels and clams, and small fish such as anchovies and sardines made up most of their diet. Cotton had also been domesticated and was used primarily in the production of textiles and fishing nets. This would have been the most important economic resource of the Corral Supe, as once processed, it was easily tradable. Government is somewhat of a mystery due to no recorded history of the Corral Supe civilization. Nonetheless, archaeologists have attempted to analyze the labor mobilization required to produce the large earthen monuments and depressions. Though true that this indicates some form of centralization, it does not necessarily indicate a hierarchical distribution of power, as some claim. Early sites indicate slow communal building. Later sites, especially large ones, indicate quick communal building. Whether this communal construction was forced through slavery, forced through wages, the least likely, or completely voluntary, remains unknown. Some historians suggest that economic control over cotton and food may supply a reason to suggest the former explanation. Religious control is another possibility. What is clear is that no evidence of violence, coordinated usage of weapons, defensive structures, or mass graves can be found prior to the invention of ceramics in the Andean region. Thus, it's unlikely that construction was coerced through direct force. 
it's just as possible that regular construction festivals were used to positively reinforce the concept of building for the glory of one's people. The large geographical space between this early civilization and others indicates that our pre-existing expectations for why somebody builds a pyramid or other large structure should not be trusted. In the late 2000s BCE, the Karal Supe moved inland from their river valleys, being the first to inhabit the Andes at any large scale. This migration coincided with the decline of the Karal Supe civilization, which is typically dated to approximately 1800 BCE. Archaeologists have tracked this migration, mostly north, via observing irrigation canals. It seems that the Karal Supe crossed the Andes, potentially even entering the Amazon River Basin, and either assimilated with other peoples living there or had no reason to make use of their irrigation canals in the water-rich environment of the Amazon. Thus, any evidence of them disappears at this time. It doesn't help that no distinctive tools, pottery, or visual imagery are related to them. Perhaps we could have more easily traced their migration if such artifacts were present and had persisted. In fact, the only major cultural artifacts were probably religious and related to other members of the Kotosh religious tradition. These included biconvex beads and flutes. As the Karal Supe left, people still remained in the Andes. The coast remained as the center for life. The Kupisnike culture, sometimes referred to as a cult, arose around 1500 BCE and lasted until 500 BCE. Our evidence of this culture's presence is almost entirely from a few temples, religious artifacts, and pottery. They seem to have worshipped a spider deity who would remain important until 300 BCE after the end of this cult and culture. Architecturally, they used adobe to build their homes and temples. They also created mirrors. Ultimately, little is known about these people and their relation to subsequent groups is murky at best. Some connect them to the Chavin and some to the Moche. It is much more likely that the Kupisnike affected both of these later cultures. The Chavin emerged in 900 BCE. This name comes from an archaeologist who first found the best-known representative site of this people. Their temples were often in the mountains and made use of complex drainage systems that would reverberate the sound of rushing water throughout the building. This indicates a history of building close to and on mountains, suggesting that either this group had built undiscovered or completely destroyed temples previously, or learned these drainage techniques from the Kupisnike or other smaller groups. Furthermore, some of their temples were built of black limestone and white granite, which would have had to be moved across great distances to be used in the construction. Metallurgy was developed by the Chavin and was used for beautiful goldwork and soldering. They also grew corn, potatoes, and quinoa as their staple crops. They were the first to domesticate the camelids, llamas, alpacas, etc. They used the animals for food and their fur for textiles. Unfortunately, the temples remain as some of our only direct evidence of the Chavin. Residences and storage facilities have not been found from this time. This indicates that these were made of impermanent materials, such as wood and reeds. 
The presence of the temples shows us that there had to have been some large-scale storage, perhaps even at the temple, to sustain enough people to build it. This construction took centuries, taking place across the Chavin's presence in the region. Unlike previous cultures, the Chavin made a great deal of representative visual art on their pottery, metalwork, and temple architecture. Many of these scenes depict humans interacting with animals and religious rituals. Much of their art uses a style called contour rivalry, which means that when viewed from different angles, the art can be understood as different images. Thus, a depiction of a ritual when viewed from another angle becomes either incomprehensible or a natural depiction of a night sky, animals, or a human holding a plant. This displays an incredible obsession with detail and perhaps continued reproduction of one piece until it was perfect, similar to the cyclical construction of the temple. Chavin art and goods can be found across northern South America. Their temple was at a centralized location on trade routes from the Amazon to the Pacific coast. Thus, their art influenced many people's later styles. In fact, most representative art from the Andes today can be seen as an evolution of the Chavin style. The Chavin seem to have had an elite class of shamans and priests who ruled their temple and culture. The complex construction of their temple, sourcing of faraway items, and depictions of rituals demonstrate that the shamans controlled life with an iron hand. There are multiple instances of pottery depicting a reinterpretation of prior beliefs. Furthermore, unlike the previous Karal Supe, who may have more communally planned their large, somewhat simplistic earthen mounds and depressions, the Chavin temple was clearly planned by some centralized power likely the shaman priests. The Chavin religion likely made use of psychoactive drugs, perhaps for the masses and certainly for the shamans. Regular festivals and processions and sacrifices. Hierarchy was both present and absent in ritual, as the temple contained inner rooms that could be heard in large outer rooms. This element of awareness concerning privacy is unique among religion as far as I know. The participants in these rituals would have felt close to the shamans while being visually and physically separated from the shaman's part of the ritual by quite a distance. Thus, the highest level of spiritual access was both restricted and displayed to the masses. For unknown reasons, the Chavin culture's artifacts begin to dwindle and then disappear around 200 BCE. In 100 CE, the Moche culture appeared. Sometimes, an intermediate group called the Salinar culture are referenced linking the Chavin and Moche, though this connection is tenuous at best. Construction and the establishment of new sites would not significantly increase until the emergence of the Moche. Similar to the Karal Supe, the Moche were also centered on coastal river valleys and made heavy use of irrigation for agriculture. The Moche were decentralized, and towns appeared mostly independent of each other. Small city-states may have arisen at this time, though no evidence of central rule exists. Unlike the Chavin's patriarchal shamanic culture, the Moche had priestesses buried in ornate tombs, indicating a matriarchal system. Molds began to be used for ceramics production, allowing for mass trade of this pottery. The ability to easily make jars may have led the Moche to focus on their signature designs, extremely ornate and artistic. 
The pottery uses primarily red, white, and occasionally black colors. Depictions vary, but included metallurgy, textile work, war, and a significant amount of erotica. The erotic was an important, even spiritual, theme for the moche. It is by far the most common depiction found on their ceramics and contains various forms of sex. Anal sex is one of the predominant forms. Figures' genital regions were rigorously carved and painted to display a specific usage of the anus as being penetrated rather than the vagina. Oral sex is occasionally represented as well. Sexual themes were present in depictions of war. Fluids were constantly used as a depiction of flow and cyclical life. Humiliation and emasculation were also important themes. Most art scholars agree that the pottery displays real people rather than imagined divine forms. This is due to the presence of physical disfigurement across a number of pieces. It's posited that the pots were used for educational purposes, teaching adolescents about sex, war, and other adult themes that may have been difficult to simply talk about. Another model suggested is that the pottery was a response to the Chavin and other surrounding cultures that may have been less sex-positive, more patriarchal, or unaware of the concepts of cyclicity and flow displayed by the moche. Ultimately, I believe that this is a representation of sexual education, which I think is really, really cool, because to my knowledge, this is one of the only cultures that actually made use of depictions of sex in this way, in this form that was so direct. Most of our recorded history comes from patriarchal cultures that were pretty sex negative and generally did not even depict sex, like at all, especially visually. So it's refreshing to hear about a culture that made regular use of these depictions. Textiles remained important and demonstrated a clear social hierarchy practiced by the moche as well as gender roles. A male headcloth and long dresses for women were somewhat standardized and clothing varied in quality. However, higher quality clothing was generally homogenized, suggesting that an upper class made use of specific artisans while the lower classes produced their own clothes. Metalwork was also iterated upon by the moche. They used large tubes to stoke coals, a much more efficient method than Eurasians used. Many metal objects were buried with elite moche. A number of pseudo-modern techniques were used by the moche to create some of the most complex metalwork known to the world at the time. Electrochemical replacement plating and depletion gliding were used to create layers of gold or silver over copper to prevent oxidation. They also made specialized copper alloys with gold and silver. Attempts to determine exactly how this was done remain failures, as the knowledge has been completely lost. The moche clearly made use of complex trade routes across South America and maybe even into Mesoamerica. They also practiced human and animal sacrifice. This was sometimes shown on pottery, especially men who were depicted as skeletons, sometimes in a sex act. For unknown reasons, by 600 CE, most moche culture had disappeared. The Wari, sometimes referred to as an empire, appeared in 600 CE, becoming dominant until 800 CE. They were likely an offshoot of the Moche, though this isn't definitive. The Wari were violent. Some locals abandoned villages, while others were probably subjugated. 
The Wari made use of terraced agriculture, for the first time making maize viable in the inland mountainous region. They used a kipu, knotted cord, for their records, which remained as the recorded language in the region until conquest. Historians have never been successful in translating these cords, meaning that we have no surviving records from this culture. Thus, it is hard to determine why the Wari conquered surrounding peoples. It may have been increases in population led to an interest in acquiring more land for farming, centralized rule, or even religious domination. This is unclear. Burial sites show social stratification with elites, middle-class, and working-class peoples. Their architecture was haphazard at best. Quickly built administrative buildings are the most common evidence of their presence in a region. They pioneered the use of a road system to connect the Andes, which laid the foundation for the Incas to iterate later. Similar to the Moche, they practiced sacrifice, mostly animals and occasionally humans, though they seem to have been patriarchal, or at least gender equitable. Kilns and pottery making had become further developed, with a great number of ceramics present in the archaeological record from the group. Textiles also remained important, though not significantly different from previous peoples. The Chimor, or Chimu, arose after a long drought affected the Wari in 800 CE. By 900, the Wari population was heavily declining, opening up the region for control. Once again, the Chimu established in the fertile river valleys on the northern Peruvian coast. They seem to have stemmed more directly from the Moche culture. Information online concerning this group seems less dedicated and more fragmentary, suggesting that not a lot of archaeological evidence of specific towns has been found. The concurrent development of the Cusco Kingdom also complicates their history. What is clear is that Chan Chan was their capital, where most supplies seem to have been shipped. They were occasionally violent, conquering some local peoples, especially the Sikan culture. They were socially stratified in similar ways as the Wari. Large canals were built from rural areas back towards the capital, allowing for even faster travel and trade. Agriculture, use of camelids, and fishing remained the primary modes of food acquisition. Metallurgy was not as complex as the Moche, suggesting a decline and loss of information after the Moche's decline. Textiles and pottery remained important. They made use of a number of dyes and paints to decorate these pieces of clothing and textiles. The Chimu also used closed kilns to produce special all-black pottery not exposed to oxygen during the firing process. Shells and shell working were significant trade opportunities for the Chimu, who traded ornate shell work across the pre-existing trade routes in the region. Their capital, Chan Chan, contained a number of large pyramid-like structures used as palaces and shrines. These were walled off from the bulk of Chimu people, indicating severe differences between the lives of the ruling class and the working class. Most Chimu lived on the outer edges of Chan Chan in single-room houses. The Chimu religion was polytheistic, though centered around the worship of a moon deity. This set itself apart from the developing Cusco kingdom, which, though also polytheistic, surrounded the worship of a sun deity. Similar to the Moche, the Chimu practiced animal and human sacrifice. In fact, a mass grave has been found with blindfolded, bound human bodies, about 200 of them. This may have been some form of punishment or a religious ritual. 
It is only now that we come to the Incas. They began as a small group centered around Cusco in southern Peru in 1200 BCE. They slowly grew and formed a centralized monarchy. Their first leaders are pseudo-historical and often mythologized. Manco Capac was their first ruler and features in their origin myths. The kingdom of Cusco became the Incan Empire after a number of conquests by the early rulers of this kingdom. The Inca Empire was known as Tehuantinsuyu by its people. This literally translates to the four coordinating provinces. These provinces represented the four directions. Chinchaisuyu in the north, Antisuyu in the east, Kulyasuyu in the south, and Kuntisuyu in the west. These four provinces met at the capital of Cusco both geographically and politically. Each suyu was composed of individual counties, or Wamani. These Wamani numbered somewhere close to 80 at the empire's height. The Incas arose from a combination of the Tiwanaku culture, which we did not discuss, and the Wari Empire. Those people influenced them the most with their usage of terraced farming, road building, and conquest. Now we skipped the Tiwanaku because they were structurally quite similar to the Wari, existed at exactly the same time, just in the south instead of the north. Now, much of Incan success in conquest can be attributed to influences from these and surrounding cultures, as well as the accomplishments and pre-existing architecture throughout the region. Use of preserved foods, maize, potatoes, and jerky has also been cited as aiding conquest efforts. The founder of the Inca Empire is often depicted as an incarnation of the staff god, who was present in many of the religions we have talked about previously, though rarely taking such a central role. The Incas saw themselves as children of the sun, their ruler as the sun god, and celebrated a festival of the sun every summer. You can see that this is the name of our myth today, children of the sun. Cusco was seen as the center of everything, of the whole world. In the 1400s CE, the government of the Incas fully centralized under the rule of Pachacuti. He may have also been the ruler who established Machu Picchu and ordered its construction. Similar to the Roman Empire, the Incas rarely had to use force to incorporate new peoples under its rule. Oftentimes, spies would ascertain the needs and weaknesses of a people. Then diplomatic representatives of the Inca Empire would establish themselves in that people's capital. After leveraging the Inca's wide trade relations, access to luxury goods, access to raw goods, and perhaps even the unique problems of each individual people, most cultures would acquiesce and allow themselves to be ruled by the Incas. Conquest did occur readily close to Cusco, especially in the Inca's early history though this use of diplomacy allowed for their dramatic expansion and rule of almost 250 times the population of their own empire. By the end of the Incan Empire, approximately 40,000 Incas ruled 10 million people across the Andes, coastal Pacific, and Amazon River Basin. This was maintained through the sending of governors to the four large regions, regular communication via the extensive road system, which the Incas added onto and modernized, and occasional use of force. If force was used, local rulers were executed, and Incas were established as the de facto rulers of the conquered people. However, 
the children of the local rulers were kidnapped and taken to be re-educated at Cusco, where they were indoctrinated into Incan society. They were then returned to their locality. This allowed the Incas to control wide swaths of people without use of their own manpower. Marriage was also used to control far-off localities. Taxation was the primary form of continual subjugation practiced by the Incas. The largest conquest by far was that of Tupac Inca Yupanqui. In the mid-1470s CE, he led a series of fronts against the Chimu people in the north of Peru. The Chimu were the only significant restriction on unlimited power being held by the Inca in the Andes, and they ultimately failed in preventing this eventuality. In the south, Tupac's son, Huayna Capac, attempted to conquer the Mapuche in Argentina and Chile, but failed at the Battle of the Maule. It remains unclear why the Inca left the region to the Mapuche and did not return. Perhaps it was because of significant resistance, the distance from the Incan center of Cusco, or success in other regions. Nonetheless, the Incas did conquer multiple peoples living close to the Mapuche. In the early 1500s CE, Inca conquest was slowed and stopped by the Shu'ar people in the Amazon River Basin. This represented the eastern edge of the Inca Empire. The Incas permitted a cultural diversity amongst those they ruled. They did promote the usage of Quechua as a lingua franca for trade, but never prevented the use of local languages. Quechua is actually a group of languages, ill-defined. People could speak similarly, if different varieties, and mostly understand each other. This is similar to the Slavic and Romance languages of Europe. The Incas themselves, though speaking Quechua with other peoples, used their own language called Capaximi. There were two distinct versions of this Incan language, divided among class lines between the upper and lower classes. They used quipus, likely a practice derived from the Wari, to record trade interactions and government decrees, though we cannot translate these knotted cords. Gender roles were ritualized in Incan society, beginning as early as three or four years old. A child's head would be shaved as they entered what they called the stage of ignorance, wherein they had to learn their place in society and the gender role assigned to them. Puberty was marked with a ritual distinct between men and women that signified sexual maturity. Adolescents were permitted to sexually explore without producing children. It is unclear if this referred only to non-reproductive sex acts or potentially the use of contraception and abortion to prevent the production of children. Marriage signified the last major development in an Inca's life. This represented an entrance into producing children, regular work, and true maturity. Some refer to a final stage at the end of life related to losing humanity and sexuality entirely, though it is unclear how this was understood in society. Unlike gender roles in many other societies, Incan gender roles were considered equitable, equal parts of a whole. This may have been why marriage was so heavily stressed, as it represented the forming of a whole, capable of use in society. Women did not just care for children or do housework, but also worked in the field. Similarly, men helped care for their children and applied themselves to housework. Patrilineal and matrilineal descent are present, exclusive to each gender. Mothers passed on their belongings and land to their daughters, while fathers passed theirs to their sons. 
Mummification was practiced instead of burial or cremation. The high altitude made this process much easier, though specialists did use tools and chemicals to hasten the mummification, especially during the warm months. Inca religion contains both elements of afterlife and reincarnation, and little is known about their exact relationship with death. What is clear is that the Incas feared being burned either before or after death, as they thought it would disrupt their journey after life had ended. Human and animal sacrifice was practiced, likely in a similar manner to previous and surrounding cultures. Barter, reciprocal exchange called Aini, and the use of proto-currency, uh, axe monies and bronze artifacts, display a complex trading system based on goodwill, haggling, and fairness above all else. It is still understood today that a buyer does not take too much from a seller, and vice versa. Oftentimes, a sale would be accompanied with a gifting of one's own goods, even if only in a small amount. Labor was accomplished both voluntarily and compulsorily. It was understood that the construction of public works benefited all people, and so little coercion was used to accomplish even large projects. This could explain some of the early large projects, even dating as far back as the Corral Supe. Legality was non-formal, with inspectors holding almost unlimited power to judge a person's actions. Stealing, lying, and laziness were seen as the ultimate forms of illegal action, though the exact contours of how the legal system worked remain somewhat unknown. It seems more likely that the Inca made use of pre-existing rulers they conquered to supply local court systems, with the inspectors occasionally visiting a region if unrest was heard of. Calendars became codified for the first time in the region, mostly based off of movements of the sun. However, there was a coinciding lunar calendar potentially incorporated after the conquering of the Chimu. Oddly, despite broad understandings of astronomy, eclipses remained impossible for the Inca to predict. The one aspect we can translate about quipus is their mathematical function. They used a base 10 numerical system to count all sorts of items for trade, military functions, and communication. Textiles remained important, especially tunics. These tunics often bore a pattern of interlocking checkerboards of demonstrating universalism and the connection of all peoples. This pattern is called kolkapada. Ceramics remained similar to previous cultures, especially the Chavin. Weapons were diversified for conquest, helmets, shields, sharpened spears, and breastplates. And medicine became much more complex, though little knowledge has survived concerning the usage of anything other than skull surgeries for head trauma. The Spanish, led by Francisco Pizarro, arrived in 1526 CE. In 1529 CE, Pizarro returned with more men. Little is known about these early meetings between the Spanish and the Incas, although they appear to be diplomatic and peaceful in nature. The Incas likely saw the Spanish as very distant people incapable of any encroachment onto their territory. After the first Spanish encounter, disease spread rapidly throughout the Incas. Some speculate that this was the Spanish who introduced the diseases, while others posit that the Mesoamerican trade led to the significant population decline experienced before the Spanish returned. Even the ruler of the Incas, Huayna Capac, and his heir died of disease. This destabilized the entire empire, leading to a civil war between three potential inheritors to the throne. 
Atahualpa ultimately subdued the other rebel forces, establishing himself briefly before the Spanish returned with military force. In 1532, Pizarro brought 160 troops armed with cannons, steel armor, metal swords, and arquebuses, early muskets. Their technological advantage made it almost impossible for the destabilized Inca Empire to respond, despite their enormous disparity in population. After the first battle, the Battle of Puna, Hernando de Soto was sent inland to scout ahead. He met the forces of Atahualpa, who offered to meet with the Spanish, likely to determine some kind of peace deal. De Soto returned to Pizarro, who readied his troops and marched to meet Atahualpa. What occurred next is one of the most insidious and infamous events of indigenous colonization. It is known for its inhumanity, lack of compassion. Upon meeting Atahualpa, the Spaniards refused his gift of gold, read a likely incomprehensible document requesting that the Incas be ruled by the Spanish and convert to Catholicism. The Incas had only met the Spanish twice at this point, thrice if you count the battle. Atahualpa refused the offer, clearly. In response, the Spanish began massacring hundreds, if not thousands, of defenseless Incan soldiers, who were only armed at the time with hunting tools. They captured Atahualpa and requested a ransom. The Inca supplied the ransom of one room full of gold and two rooms full of silver. Despite this enormous amount of wealth, freely given for the exchange of their leader, the Spanish refused to let Atahualpa go, eventually charging him with having a different Inca ruler vying for power, Uascar, killed. Thus, they executed Atahualpa in 1533 CE. Despondent, most Incas were unable to respond to the Spanish. Atahualpa's brother was installed as a puppet ruler and tribute was regularly taken by the Spanish. Many groups conquered by the Incas welcomed the change and participated in the encomienda system of labor established by the Spaniards. Ultimately, relatively little changed until after the Incas had fully come to ruin in the 1570s when a Spanish governor was put in place over the region. Attempts to overthrow the Spanish persisted until the mid-1800s, though were never successful. Now, of course, the Incas have history after uh, they were colonized, but not as an empire and not as a centralized people. There are a lot of people in Peru today, especially, that uh, still identify as Inca. Although, as you can see, it's a little more complex than that. Clearly, there were a lot of different peoples living in this region and relatively few Incas. So that development might be more of an uptaking of the ultimately white person's narrative of the Incas being the most important people in this region, which they were at the time of Spanish conquest, but not throughout history. That is quite clear. It's the people of northern Peru made up the most dominant culture throughout the history of this region. And then at the very end, the people of southern Peru begin this conquest, right? Um, prior to that point, it was all northern Peru. All right, so let's tell our myth.
The Children of the Sun In times of old, our land was one of shrubs and small trees and tall mountains. The people were unmannered and untaught. They lived as wild animals live, without clothes made from woven cloth, without houses, and without cultivated food. They lived apart from other human beings in small family groups, finding lodging as nature provided it, within mountain caves and in hollow places beneath the great rocks. They covered their bodies with animal skins, leaves, and the bark of trees, or they wore no clothes at all. They gathered whatever food they could find to eat, such as grass, wild berries, and the roots of plants, and sometimes they ate human flesh. Father Son looked down from the heavens and pitied these humans who lived like wild creatures. He decided to send one of his sons, Manco Kapak, and one of his daughters, Mama Oklo Uako, down to earth at Lake Titicaca to teach them how to improve their lives. When his children were ready to leave, the son said to them, I devote myself to the well-being of the universe. Each day, I travel across the sky so that I can look down upon the earth and see what I can do for the human beings who live there. My heat provides them with the comfort of warmth. My light provides them with the knowledge that comes from sight. It is through my efforts that fields and forests provide food for them, for I bring sunshine and rain, each in its proper season. Yet all this, good as it is, is not enough. The people live like wild animals. They know nothing of living in houses, wearing clothing, or raising food. They have no villages, they use no tools or utensils, and they have no laws. Therefore, Father Son continued, I am making you the rulers of all the races in the region of Lake Titicaca. I want you to rule those peoples as a father rules his children. Treat them as I have reared you, with tenderness and affection, with devotion and justice. Teach them as I have taught you, for the races of human beings are my children also. I am their provider and their protector, and it is time they stopped living like animals. Take this golden rod with you, the son concluded. It is only two fingers thick and shorter than the arm of a man, yet it will tell you how good the soil is for cultivating crops. As you travel, whenever you stop to eat or to sleep, see if you can bury it in the land. When you come to the place where the rod sinks into the earth with one thrust, establish my sacred city, Cusco, City of the Sun. Soft soil as deep as this golden rod will be fertile soil. So Manco Kapak and Mama Oklo Uako went down to Lake Titicaca and set out on foot to examine the land. Wherever they stopped, they tried to bury the golden rod, but they could not do it. The soil was too rocky. Finally, they descended into a valley. The land was wild and without people, but the plant growth was lush and green. They climbed to the crest of a hill, the hill where Ayar Kachi and Ayar Ucho had turned to stone, and pressed the golden rod upon the soil. To their great pleasure, it sank into the earth and disappeared. Manko Kapak smiled at Mama Oklo Uako and said, Our father, the sun, intends us to rule this valley. Here we will build his sacred city, Cusco. Let us now go separate ways. 
you to the south, and I to the north. Let us gather together the peoples we find and bring them into this fertile valley. Here we will instruct them in the ways of human beings, and we will care for them as our father has commanded us. Manko Kapak and Mama Oklo Uako set out for the mountain plateaus to collect the peoples of the land. The men and women they found in the barren regions were impressed with their clothing and pierced ears, their regal bearing and their message. Let us teach you how to lead a better life, the children of the sun announced. Let us teach you how to build houses, make clothes, and raise cattle and crops. Right now you live like wild animals. Let us teach you how to live like human beings. Our father, the sun, has taught us and has sent us here to teach you. The peoples of the land placed their confidence in these children of the sun and followed as they led the way toward a new and better way of living. When many people had gathered together, Manko Kapak and Mama Oklo Uako divided the group into those who would be responsible for gathering food and those who would learn how to build houses. Their new life had begun. Manko Kapak taught the males which foods were nourishing so their diet would include both grains and vegetables, how to choose the best seeds, and how to plant and cultivate each kind of plant. In the process, he taught them how to make the tools and equipment necessary for farming and how to channel water from the streams in the valley for irrigation. He even taught them how to make shoes. Meanwhile, Mama Oklo Uako taught the women how to weave wool and cotton into cloth and how to sew that cloth into clothing. So it came to pass the Incas became an educated people. In honor of their great provider and protector, the sun, the people built a temple on the crest of the hill where Manco Capac and Mama Oklo Uako had plunged the golden rod into the earth and from which they had set out to gather the Inca people together and teach them. Their prosperity drew other peoples to join them and learn their ways. Manco Capac finally taught the men how to make weapons, such as bows and arrows, clubs and lances, so that they could defend themselves and extend their kingdom. The Incas were on their way to becoming a great people. So keep in mind that the Incas were quite imperial, right? So there's elements of classism here, there's elements of anti-primitivism or uh, anti-paganism perhaps, although that term pagan is so directly related to European belief systems that I, I am loath to use it here. So perhaps anti-primitivism is the better term because we see that the Incas have a disdain for people, quote-unquote, living like wild animals, making use of the natural world, not by processing it, but just using it. And from this understanding, they glean meaning from teaching other people about how to live a, quote-unquote, civilized life, whatever that means, right? Being civilized is an ill-defined idea, something that is used a lot. I mean, you hear it all the time, especially by ultimately racists and fascists and pretty bad people. A lot of imperialists use this notion as well. The idea that a, a people need to be taught how to be people. But that doesn't make sense because they're already people. They do not need to be taught anything. And so I do take issue with that in this myth. I think that the people living like wild animals are doing just fine. Why do they need to live like you? What is clear, though, is that the Incas saw this as a great thing that they were doing. They, they very much understood themselves as teachers, as educators. And their small population 
that was joined by all these other populations was probably built on this relationship of education, of learning civilization, of learning how to build roads and agriculture and the other things that the Incas were famous for. Now, what is strange is that all of these cultures did these things. Maybe not as much as the Incas at that time period because the Incas got so large, but they were clearly making clothing and textiles. So this myth is serving two purposes. It is serving as a political document that is talking about what people need to be doing now as children of the sun, still teaching people and still educating. But it also acts as an origin story of how the Incas came to be, how people came to be ultimately. That over time, people learned agriculture, people learned how to make clothing. And in that way, I take no issue of the myth. It is the imperial reading, which we can't get away from. It's a very important reading to understand this myth through that I, I find problems with. Now, it's interesting as well, the strict gender roles that are present here. As I said in the history, there, are very, there were very strict gender roles in Inca society. But here it is posited not as just part of society or something that can change, as I understand it, but rather a strict binary that never changes and is in fact part of civilization, an important part, that men are the ones who are figuring out planting things and women are the ones making clothing. Now clearly there's other things that people do, so it is not as strict of a binary as perhaps uh, Protestant gender roles in the uh, 1800s and 1900s, which are very intensely strict. So it has some flexibility. And this is often how gender roles work in culture, in reality. They are a guideline, a norm, right? It is normal for people to do this. But I think that that term normal is just such a poor one. We don't have a good word to talk about this like through line of a trend, right? Not something that is normal, but just something that happens a lot. Like, I'm not gonna pretend like there are not certain roles that men and women find themselves falling into. That happens all the time. And it's clear that there is a socially learned aspect to it, as well as an innate one. I am not against the idea of essentialism, but I think that it is very minor. <laughs> I don't think our biology really affects our gender roles that much. I think that it is much more a socially constructed idea, one that is also tied to the essential, but not bounded by it, if that makes sense. Now, it is clear that the Cusco Kingdom and the Inca Empire were quite patriarchal. They had kings and their main deity, the sun god, is a god, not a, just a deity or a goddess, no, a god and very masculine, very, you know, here's what you have to do, my children. This is what I expect of you, you know, very typical of a patriarchal culture. So we can see that affecting all people in this myth, that patriarchy and civilization are connected. All of these pretty problematic ideas are being connected with civilization, and this is also what was done in uh, European colonization. This trend is not only present in modern forms of colonization. It's also present in older forms, and it's a commonality that certain beliefs from a culture are woven into the processes of colonization 
so that people are quote unquote educated into doing the right thing or, or being a certain way. Ultimately, this is a myth about origin of humans. And to me, this is a much less interesting origin than many of the other origin myths we've already talked about. Because this one simply posits that we are literally children of the sun god over time. Because this one simply posits that humans existed and then they got changed slightly by deities. There is not an actual origin for humanity. We don't have this momentous thing that creates humans. And so the metaphors and representations here are a little less direct. And that might be because I am, there might be another myth that, that talks about how humans got made initially, um, because I think there is another origin myth related to the Incas, which I will tell eventually, but uh, not right now. <laughs> so, you know, that is one of the issues when we view these myths in a solitary format is we might not have the full understanding of what's going on. So I don't necessarily want to make any direct statements about that. You know, it's, it's uh, something I, I try to steer clear from is try, making analysis that is not present in the myth. Nonetheless, I think that we can have much more positive understandings of where humans come from and how we conceptualize humanity. Because humans are like everything that we are. <laughs> That's such a basic understanding, but it's true. And what I mean by that is that our minds, our hearts, our souls, whatever you think makes sense of the world, our bodies, it's the only way that we can interpret things through human means. And so defining what is human is extremely important. Now I've said previously that to me, the thing that makes people human is compassion, a willingness to help others, altruism. There are many different words for this thing. And this is the, the same thought is repeated a number of times in almost every spirituality that you come across is a willingness to see the other in the one. Now, this isn't present in every religion. I said spirituality very purposefully there. So to me, when we just talk about civilization as the human thing, it's so limiting because that's not what humans are. Humans are emotional. We're, there's so much going on um, with us that it's, it's almost hard to, uh, it's hard to even like explain because we are so caught in the discourse of humanity that we cannot escape trying to make sense of our humanness. And so these metaphors about humanity build up over time and they cover each other. And so when we just boil down humanity to being civilized or civilization, it strips us of our humanity, ironically, by supposedly becoming more human and more civilized. We take away everything that makes us human because suddenly we are only viewing humanity through this very minor lens. Because when I say that I think that compassion and altruism are the human element, I, I, I say that as it is the thing that if you don't have, I see you as less than human. And that's just my personal feeling. This is why I hate Nazis and fascists, because these people do not see the humanity of others, especially others that do not look like them or act like them or worship the same deity as them. It is this injustice that is pushed forward by a number of civilizations and also by the Incas. You know, I'm not gonna say that the Incas did not get the bad end of the stick there. It was a real rough time with the Spanish and disease and all of that. 
but they were also bad people too. This is the difficulty with, with uh, history, is that there are no good people, and there are no, there's no heroes, and there's no villains. It's just people that are trying to exert their power on those around them and people trying to get by. And to me, it's those people that are trying to get by who are the ones that, to me, if anything, are the heroes. So I feel really bad for the cultures that we don't talk about because people talk about the Incas, but we don't talk about the hundreds of other cultures that surround them or surrounded them. That is sad. We, we are lacking a full understanding of what humanity's diversity of culture actually looks like. And that is quite disturbing because that means that culture is ill-defined. We actually can't define culture because we don't have the history to do so. And so that makes almost all cultural anthropology somewhat thrown off because they're understanding culture and anthropology through the lens of these historical instances of culture, many of which just are not recorded. and We just don't know what's going on there. Now, I do want to make one point about the uh, golden rod that is described here. Now, now Manco Kapak is clearly the staff god here, and this little rod, this golden rod, is that staff. And so this gives us an insight into what the staff god might represent. Someone who is a farmer, right? The staff is a an implement of farming to test the soil, to see if this is a good place to settle, to be. And by touching that soil, one can tell if it is fertile and worth living there. That golden rod is clearly magical, but there is another element to it. There are two people or deities, it's unclear to me, I don't know these names, that are buried where the golden rod uh, can be buried in the ground as well and they decide to settle here in, uh, by Lake Titicaca, it is demonstrating that it is not the presence of the staff that creates a, a piece of fertile ground. It's not just because you check something that it's going to be good, but rather that it is through the actions of previous peoples that we get any sort of reaction, any sort of uh, benefit. And that follows with how the Incas became an empire. They made use of previous architectural improvements in the region, roads and uh, little, little storehouses that the Wari Empire built. If they hadn't had the Wari, the Incas just would not have conquered the number of people that they did. They would have been a much smaller group of people, and we might not be talking about this myth right now. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and engaging in discussion within the comments. Along with this podcast, I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocain.com. That's echocain.com. Next episode, we'll be returning to Sumeria with a story called The Descent of Ishtar, or The Descent of Inanna. It is one of my favorite myths of all time. 
Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Irrigation.